We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Or maybe you've heard some of these other famous lines. In a hole in the ground lived a hobbit from J.R.R. Tolkien. Or, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. See, these, these tell us who the story is going to be about, even from the first line. And maybe some of you ladies out there uh, have heard this one, though it's painful for me to even read it to you. Uh, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife from Pride and Prejudice. My wife has tried to get me to watch that movie uh, oftentimes. Uh, but even from that first line, what we realize is that it's telling us something about the plot, right? It's telling us something about the story that's ahead. And it's the same thing with scripture. See, we believe that beginnings are important for every story, and they're most important with God's story. And that's why today we're going to be starting a series in the book of Genesis looking at the first pages of the Bible, and what God would have to say to us about the world that he's made, the universe that he's created, and about our part in that. Because you see, the beginning of God's story is also the beginning of our story as well. And so when we look at the book of Genesis, we're not looking at just what God has done, but we're looking at what God has done in the world in which we live. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, It's the first couple pages of that book, so you can turn there with me. And Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be looking at just the first couple of verses today and potentially just the first verse. And the reason that we're going to do this is because beginnings are important. Beginnings shape what lies ahead, and they tell us what to expect and how to approach it. And, and so you, you think about the origin story of your favorite heroes, your favorite superheroes, and, and how what happens at the beginning be, begins to set the scene for you to understand the story that's about to be told. And in those origin stories, what do we often find? We often find that there's a, a destiny or a purpose or, or some kind of intended uh, a plot line that the character, the main character, the hero, is supposed to realize and recognize about his world and his life. And while Genesis is going to say far from the idea that you or I are the hero, it's going to present a different hero for us, but it's still our origin story because it's the story of how God created everything and everything includes you and I. And so as we look at the book of Genesis and the first pages of Scripture, it's very relevant for us because it has to do not just with what God is up to, but with what he's doing in our world and in our lives. So read with me in verses 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you might give us understanding of your words today. Lord, that you would help us to see 
the beginning of your story and how it shapes our own. God, we ask that you might give us uh, humble and patient hearts as we learn from you what life and your world is supposed to look like. God, we pray that you would give us grace and, and help us as we trust in you in the midst of all the brokenness and pain of our lives. God, we look to you, the creator of heaven and earth, and we trust in you alone. And it's in your son's glorious name that we ask these things. Amen. So who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, Jesus tells us that Moses, if you've, if you've heard of him, Moses, this, this guy who led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt, he was God's chosen instrument to lead them out of slavery and through that redemptive moment in their story. And Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, according to Jesus, the first five books of Scripture including the book of Genesis. And so Moses is writing these words for us, and, and some would say, well, but what about the parts of the Pentateuch that talk about Moses that, that, that clearly Moses couldn't have written because it was about himself? And so, you know, what about that? And, and the, the idea there is that in the ancient world, there would be scribes who would uh, update locations as names changed and, and, and different information that would uh, help readers understand what Moses had already written. And, and this would not contradict for them the idea that the Holy Spirit was the one who inspired the very words. And so for us, it shouldn't as well. When Jesus says that Moses was the author, what he means is that Moses is the primary one who's responsible for the words that we're reading and that he was inspired by God himself as he writes these words for us. And so we trust that Jesus probably knows better than you and I do as to who wrote the book of Genesis, but he says that it's Moses, and so I'm going to trust him on that. Um, but what was it written for? What is Genesis all about? Well, Genesis is what some theologians would call covenantal history. And so I know that's kind of a weird term to use sometimes, but what they mean by that is it's a covenant is kind of like marriage. Well, it is like marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And so when we think about marriage, what we're thinking about is this relationship between two people who are covenanted or committed to one another in a relationship that's never supposed to be broken or end. And the reason it's not supposed to break or end is because there's supposed to be this growing and deepening intimacy in this relationship. And so what theologians talk about when they talk about the book of Genesis, what they're saying at the beginning of God's story is that what Moses is telling us is he's telling us the story of how God first entered into relationship with his people. And so the book of Genesis is, is very much about uh, a, kind of, a kind of love story. It's about a relationship that, and how it originated and how it came about and what the problems were and what solutions happened and then how it gets to today. And so when we look at the book of Genesis, we're looking at this story of how God saw his people and entered into relationship with them. And the first pages of scripture tell us how it all began. And so if any of you know the book of Genesis, you know Genesis is 50 chapters long. And so maybe you're wondering right now, are we going to be in Genesis for two years? Um, and I just want to say, no, we're not going to be in Genesis for two years, so breathe a little bit. Um, and I know we're looking at one or two verses today. I promise we're not going to take five years and go through Genesis. But we are going to take the book of Genesis and break it down into its smaller chunks so that we can look at kind of mini-series throughout the book of Genesis as to what God would have to say about his story and how it impacts ours. And so we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 
Over the next couple of months, we're going to take a break. Uh, come Christmas time for our Advent series, we'll take a three to four week break, and then we'll finish up Genesis 1 and 2 in the new year. Uh, but we're going to start with Genesis 1 this week and walk our way through it. So the first thing I want you to see in Genesis 1.1, in the first verse of the Bible, is that phrase, in the beginning. And so what Moses tells us here is that there was a beginning. He doesn't tell us when this beginning was. He doesn't tell us how long ago it was. He doesn't tell us anything about the exact time of the beginning. He just says, in the beginning, he tells us there is a beginning. There was a point at some, there was a point in the history of time where time began. There was an original point. That's what he's saying when he says, in the beginning, God. He's referring to the very beginning, before there was anything else. And apparently, I've stuck some things in my Bible that I'm dropping throughout this message. But um, Genesis is about the beginning. There was a beginning, and this has implications for us. See, the next word is God, right? Moses says, in the beginning, God. And so what the beginning is about is not primarily about you or I, but it's about God. And this applies to the whole of the Bible. The reason we study the Bible is not to figure out the best principles for living daily life or, or to figure out what some weird, obscure texts might mean or, or to kind of debate things or about religion and theology and philosophy. The reason we study the Bible is because it's a book about God. The reason we come to the scriptures week in and week out, daily as Christians, as believers, the reason we study these words is because they are God's words. They are telling God's story. And so when Moses says, in the beginning, the first thing that we have to realize is there was a beginning. And so if there was a beginning, this means that the only person or thing that was ever eternal, that has ever always been, is God himself. Moses says, in the beginning, God. God was the one who was there at the origin. He was the beginning. He's how the beginning came into being. And so this means that the universe and matter and material things and naturalistic things aren't eternal. They had a beginning point, right? And even, even scientists would admit this from a perspective. You know, the, the most common theory is the Big Bang theory, right? Something, something started. There was a start to everything, right? And then you have to ask questions about, okay, so what came before that? Um, how did that come about? And there's a whole host of things that you could dive into there. But the reality is, is that there was a beginning. And this is what the Bible is laying out for us, is that in the beginning, God was the one who was responsible for it. So this means the universe isn't eternal. It means matter isn't eternal. It means God is the one who is responsible for all that we see. And so the way the ancient people would have thought about this as they're reading these words, they had a worldview that believed that everything that they could observe had a divine or supernatural aspect to it. So they very much believed in a supernatural world or creation. And they, in fact, the surrounding cultures, around Moses' culture, they believed in a variety of different gods. And so there were gods that represented the sun and the stars and the earth and the sky and, and all these different things. And Moses is writing in the midst of this culture in a way so as to say, listen, I know that you all have been trusting in all these different things 
to bring about sustenance, to bring about the food that you need, to bring about the life that you need, to bring about joy for you. But in reality, God is the one who's responsible for all of those things. And so he's contrasting his worldview, his monotheistic worldview, where he believes in one singular God that has created everything with the surrounding cultures that believed in many gods. And whenever we think about the ancient Near East, we tend to think, you know, that's just kind of like, you know, that was back then and we're smarter than that now. And why would we ever believe in multiple gods or, or the divine or anything? But in reality, you and I, we, we believe in divine personal things. And so we see this in the TV shows that we watch. We, you know, I think about uh, the, the show that got canceled, Kevin Probably Saves the World, or The Good Place, or any number of shows that we see on TV. And, you, and what you find on television is these ideas that maybe there's not a God, but there's the universe, and the universe is personal. The universe is responsible for my destiny, and, and if good things happen to me, then the, the universe looked on me with favor, and if bad things happen to me, then the universe just didn't like what was happening with me and, and set my destiny in a different course. And so this is the kind of language we hear, that the, the universe brought something about for us. And it doesn't make any logical sense when we really think about it, because what we talk about when we talk about the universe is material things, Right? We talk about science when we talk about the study of natural things and, and then this idea that there could be something natural and material that would be personal and godlike that could bless or curse or, or anything like that is, is just frankly kind of ridiculous and it's just pervading our, our culture and the way that we think and the reason we think this way is because we can't help but believe in the divine. We can't help but believe in a God of some kind. When we look at our world, we look at the brokenness that we see, and we look at the good things that we see, and we can't help but feel like someone is either blessing or cursing. Someone is responsible for the good things or the bad things that happen around us. And so we approach our world, even if we don't believe in God, by saying, the universe is what has blessed me. The universe is what's responsible for this. The universe is responsible for my destiny. But what Moses is saying is that there was a beginning, and in the beginning was God. It wasn't the universe. Matter isn't eternal. And so we like to look on the ancients and, and say they had a really primitive worldview that believed in multiple gods, but in reality, we believe in the supernatural too. We just try to frame it in a way that makes it more palatable for us. But what Moses is saying is that it's not necessary to do that because there was a beginning, and I think all of us can acknowledge that. And so there had to be a beginner, a creator. And he says, this was God. C.S. Lewis, when he, he talks about evolution and science and such and, and how it's kind of become this way to frame a whole worldview, not just to observe what has happened in terms of biology and physics and things that have happened, but it becomes this, this whole worldview where we try to get it to explain other questions that it can't answer. Things like, why is there something instead of nothing? Why are we here? What has gone wrong with us? And what is the solution to it? And we try to get it to answer these philosophical, theological questions that science can't possibly answer because they don't deal with the material world. They don't deal with material things that can be observed and tested and refuted. 
And so C.S. Lewis says this. He says, natural selection doesn't care what you believe. It's interested only in how you behave. He's saying it's about observing the physical aspects of our world. And Legan Duncan, a, a famous preacher and, and, and scholar, said, said this. He said, looking at the way that our world has been formed or shaped shouldn't eliminate faith for us. So say we're really into the scientific method, and the scientific method is amazing. We've learned so much from science. I mean, the reality is when you or I go to the doctor, we're relying on the fact that they have some scientific knowledge that's based on hard, cold facts, right? We're hoping that when we walk in that room that they're going to know what they're talking about because they've studied things and they've understood how physical things, how our bodies work. And so we rely on science on a day-to-day basis, and it's a good, God-given thing. But what Legan Duncan points out is that just because we have somehow observed how something scientifically came into being or what a process was, whether you ascribe to a theory of evolution or another theory or whatever it may be, however you're approaching the way the physical universe originates and comes into being, just because you've observed something scientifically does not mean that faith is ridiculous and out of hand or in contradiction to whatever science demonstrates. And I'm not saying that I ascribe to a certain view on that, but I'm just saying what he's pointing out is that it doesn't have to be contradictory. And he, what he says is that if, if you were to take an SUV and transport it um, back into history, he says, if you went with Doctor Who back into uh, hundreds of years ago and you took this SUV from our day and our time and you placed it with this people on an island that had no SUVs and had no understanding of it, and they had hundreds of years to study this SUV and finally gain some understanding of, as to how the SUV worked, it would be ridiculous to conclude that just because they understood how the SUV worked physically, that there wasn't a designer behind its making. That's what Legan Duncan is saying, and that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Just because we observe how something works does not mean that there was not a designer, that there was not someone responsible for the way it has come into being. And I think there's, there's, there's good science and there's bad science and there's scientific studies and hypotheses that we should question. I mean, that's the very idea of science, right? Is that we question things and we study things and we gain knowledge. But that knowledge isn't contradictory to faith or what the Bible is saying. Moses is talking about a beginning, the beginning of time. And when Moses says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. When he's talking about the, this beginning of time, time implies that there's a story coming and that there's stewardship. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that when Moses is saying in the beginning, there's an implication that there's going to be a middle and an end, right? That's how stories work. That's how our favorite novels work. That's how, that's how books of history work. There's a beginning, middle, and ending point, right? Whenever we read a book, that's what we expect, And it's no different with the Bible as it displays what Moses believes to be the origins of the universe and of all that is. He's saying in the beginning, and that implies there's going to be a middle and an end. And so we have to talk about the story of the Bible. What is the story of the Bible? Well, it's creation, fall, redemption, and new creation or consummation. 
So that's how uh, Bible scholars have, have thought about these things. They've thought about, okay, so it starts in Genesis with the beginning. There's this creation of God that is good, and then in the fall, things go bad in Genesis 3. Things go wrong whenever God's created beings live in rebellion against him and choose to walk in their own ways rather than the ways that God has designed life to work. And that brings chaos and relational conflict and destruction, and it brings depression and anger and feuds. And then there's this redeemer who shows up, who is prophesied about throughout the Old Testament, even from Genesis chapter 3. There's this redeemer who's coming, who brings restoration to what has gone wrong in the world. And then you read in the last pages of Scripture, here's what we read in the book of Revelation, second to last chapter of the Bible. Here's what we read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And here's Jesus' words. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you see how even the end of the Bible is talking about creation? From the first pages of scripture, we read about a God who creates the heavens and the earth. And then at the end of the story, we read about a recreation, a new creation that Jesus himself is bringing about. You see that John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then you also see that marriage covenantal language, right? Where God is in relationship with his people forever in this new creation. So this is the story of the Bible. This is the story of creation. God created the heavens and the earth, including us. And then in Genesis 3, we find that we make a whole big mess of it. And then he sends a redeemer who is actually responsible for the creation in the first place, Jesus himself. And he recreates it. He makes it new in such a way as to one day he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Pain and death and suffering will be no more. And so right now, you and I are in the middle of the story. If the beginning is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it implies there's a middle and an end, and the end is Revelation chapter 21 with the new heavens and the new earth, then what we're in right now is the middle. And I don't know about you, but the middle is tough for me. The middle is hard. The middle involves broken relationships and pain and suffering and a lot of difficulties in life, in marriage, in parenting, in the workplace, in our friendships, whatever it may be, there's brokenness present. And so when we look at, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you know, you and I, we come to it with a little bit of skepticism. Because we look at our world and we see the brokenness and then we see this account of a good creation in Genesis 1 and 2 where God makes everything and he has this repeated refrain throughout these chapters where he says, and it was good. But what you and I see is not good. 
When we look at our lives and our relationships, we see brokenness, we see the fall. And it's because you and I are living in the middle of the story. We're living in the midst of it. And the question is, what was at the beginning? Who was at the beginning and how was it made to be? Because that tells us what exactly has gone wrong. And so the reason we're looking at the book of Genesis, the reason we're spending time looking at the beginning is because you and I are in the middle of the story and if time is this created thing that God has made, then he's given you and I a life to live that involves time and it's temporary. And so if you and I are in the middle, then we have a stewardship as well as a story. We have an opportunity in this one life that we have to live to steward our time well. We look around us and we see brokenness and so we wonder, should we just live life our own way and pursue our own desires because, you know what, time is limited and I see brokenness and pain around me and I experience that and, and I want something different but the reality is it's not different right now for me. And so we wonder if we need to live life according to our own ways. But in reality, when you and I do that, if we're honest with ourselves, we just experience more pain and more brokenness. We destroy our relationships because the next thing that we have to realize about creation is that Moses says God was the one at the beginning and at the center of creation. And so he's at the center of the universe. And when you and I live life according to our own ways, we're placing ourselves at the center. And it's the biggest mistake that we could ever make in life. Because life wasn't made to be about us. We think it is because we live in America and we live in a culture that tells us that everything is about what you want and your dreams and and the things that you want to pursue. And it promises us the American dream, the good life, and, and we pursue these things and we work hard to get the things that we want. We go to work day in and day out and we work hard and we stay long hours and we get there early or we stay late. And, and we neglect time with family so that we can make the money that we think we need to have the trips we want to take and do the things that we want to do in life, when in reality what just happens is our relationships at home break down and, and our relationships at work aren't what we want them to be because, you know what, we're fallen and broken and we mess up at work even though we're working so hard. Friends, we're living in the middle of the story and we've been given a stewardship with time. God has made time, and he's given you and I a life to be stewarded. And he says, here's the way, walk in it. And he's not trying to withhold joy from us. He's trying to point us to the greatest joy that can be found. And it's life with him at the center. Because when God is at the center of your life, all of a sudden, all the other things in your life, all the other arenas, work, home, marriage, kids, whatever it may be, friendships, all of those other things start to fall in their proper place when God is placed at his in the center. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means that God is what the story of the Bible is about and ultimately what our story is about. Ultimately, you and I, our story, our life is about God. It'll either be about glorifying him and honoring him and experiencing the greatest and fullness of joy in relationship with him, or it'll be about demonstrating that he was just when we constantly rebelled against the good things that he called us to walk in and extended out towards us as gifts, and we just rejected him because we thought we knew better. 
God's given us a story and a stewardship with time. But the question a lot of people ask is, okay, if there was a beginning, how long ago was it? How old is the earth? This is the question that a lot of people want to debate with Genesis 1. This is where they want to go immediately. It's like we start reading Genesis 1 and we miss everything that Moses is trying to do because we have a lot of debates that we want to have. But I do want you to understand just some of the various perspectives that people have on creation because I think it's helpful just to be aware as you're talking about these things with one another. Um, one is called young earth creationism. This is the idea that the earth is six to 10,000 or so years old. This is the idea that uh, scientific evolution and the things that are, are found in that kind of study are uh, flawed and contradictory to what Genesis 1 and 2 are teaching us. This is the idea that Genesis 1 and 2, uh, Genesis 1 particularly, involves literal 24-hour days and a, a young earth that's not very old. And they get this from the different genealogies throughout the book. Um, and there's a number of Christians and scholars who hold this view. Some of those are Kurt Wise, Ken Ham, John MacArthur, Richard Belcher, and others. And then there's old earth creationism, which is the idea that the earth is really old. It's billions of years old. So they still believe that God created the heavens and the earth and that he is responsible for that. They just believe the earth is older than some have thought. And so there's a number of different views in there. They say that scientific evidence that the earth is old uh, is complementary to what Genesis is telling us. And they say there's a day-age theory where the days in Genesis 1 are actually long periods of time where God created different things over different periods. Uh, there's a gap theory that says that in Genesis 1, God created everything, and then there's this gap of time before he starts to order everything else and make everything else the way it's supposed to be. Um, and so then the earth could be old that way. Um, and there's historical creation. There's a lot of different nuanced points to that. But the reality is, is that there's some Christians who think the earth is young. There's some who think the earth is old. Some of the ones who think the earth is old include John Piper, John Salehammer, Hugh Ross, Gleason Archer, and others such as... Uh, yeah, that, that'd be the old earth representatives. Um, <laughs> there's lots of others, but I don't want to give you too many. Um, and then thirdly, there's this idea that's called evolutionary creationism or theistic evolution. Um, this is the idea that what the Bible is saying and what evolution is saying are complementary. They're not contradictory at all. Um, that there's actually a way to understand both of these things and complement one another. Um, they believe the earth is billions of years old, so they'd fall under that old earth view. Um, and, and they also believe that God is the creator of all things. So they still believe that God is the one who made the heavens and the earth and that he's responsible for them. He just did it using a different means than some others have thought. And so this is evolutionary creationism, theistic evolution is what it's called. And there's surprisingly a lot more Christians who hold this view than you would think. I personally don't hold this view. So if you're wondering about that, you can breathe a little bit. But um, there are Christians that I love and respect and study their works that, that hold this view. And there's Christians that you probably love and respect that hold this view. Um, some of those would include, uh, or at least people who would say it's possible, it would include Timothy Keller, James K. Smith, Scott McKnight, Tremper Longman III, John Ortberg, John Walton, Francis Collins, N.T. Wright, and even C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham said that this was a possibility. 
And so some of the famous Christians that we read and listen to hold different perspectives, perspectives on creation than we might. And so, you know, I, just, just growing up in the faith as, I, as I've learned different things, yeah, I didn't grow up in church, but as I became a Christian and learned things about creation from other Christians, I always leaned towards kind of the young earth view. And then uh, when I got to seminary, I still kind of leaned that way. But um, as I was writing papers and such, I read some arguments for the old earth view that sounded really good. And though I didn't necessarily hold to it, I found it really easy to argue for in terms of an academic paper. And then I found Christians that I really respected who held the third view of evolutionary creationism or theistic evolution. And so the point is, is that you and I have friends and Christians that we love and respect who hold a different perspective than we do. And that's okay. Because in reality, you and I don't know everything about creation because Moses doesn't tell us everything about creation. It's not his purpose. It's not his intention. He's telling us a a theological truth about God. God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he's the one that's responsible for all of it. And so, you and I, we have to have charity and humility with one another. I mean, we read in, in Ecclesiastes 11.5 this, it says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So you and I weren't there at creation. We don't know how God did things. We don't know how old the earth is because Moses doesn't tell us. It's not his intention to tell us. Now, we can, we can have those theological debates and discussions. I think there's places for that. There's places for Christians to lovingly disagree with each other and talk about things and, and have those discussions. But we do so with humility and love for one another, considering others as better than ourselves and giving them the benefit of the doubt and love that they actually have maybe a good reason for the perspective they hold, even if it's different from ours. We, we exercise some humility towards one another as we talk through these things because there is some mystery. There's things that we don't know that Moses hasn't told us. And so we can't claim them dogmatically because Moses hasn't told us. If Moses had told us, then, then absolutely. We would just hold to that and, and die on that hill. But the reality is Moses doesn't tell us everything there is to know about creation. He's telling you about God, who, the God who made it, the God who created everything. Anyways, those are kind of the three perspectives that different Christians hold. There's Christians, even in this very room, that hold different perspectives than you. So I would just ask, as you're talking about these things with other believers, as you're talking about them with your friends, that you would be humble and loving towards them, because there's going to be people in this room who disagree with you, and it's okay. I still believe that the Bible is an errant, inspired scripture, that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and that Jesus said so, and, and that Moses is writing about the God who made everything, and we're to submit to his will for our lives. And so we can have room for disagreement and discussing the things that Moses doesn't tell us explicitly. But then there's a couple of views that aren't necessarily, they're either opposed to Christianity or um, not necessarily Christianity. One is atheistic evolution. This is not the idea that evolution and creationism are compatible. This is the idea of evolution as a whole worldview. So this means they're trying to get evolution, like we talked about earlier, to say and answer things that it can't answer because it wasn't made to. This is the idea that evolution can answer questions like, why is there something rather than nothing, and, and why are we here, and, and philosophical, metaphysical questions. 
It's, it's a whole worldview that people base their lives on. Instead of an observation of how something biologically came into being, instead of a scientific observation, it is a worldview that is meant to explain everything. This is what atheistic evolution is, and there's some well-known proponents of it, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, um, are all guys who have written books from this perspective um, as atheists who don't believe in God um, and who hold to an evolutionary worldview, not just as a description of biology, but as a worldview um, meant to explain and answer the big philosophical questions of life. Why are we here and where are we going? Here's what Tim Keller says about this as he kind of critiques this view. He says, the argument goes like this. Does natural selection alone give us cognitive faculties such as sense perception, rational intuition, and uh, about those perceptions and our memory of them? So he's saying, is natural selection what's responsible for the way you and I that think? And he says, if so, that produced true beliefs about the real world. So he's saying, is, is natural selection responsible for the way you and I think about the world? He says, in as far as true belief produces survival behavior, sure. If, if that's what natural selection means and that's what it's doing, sure. But who can say how far that goes? If a theory makes it impossible to trust our minds, then it also makes it impossible to be sure about anything our minds tell us, including macroevolution itself and everything else. Any theory that makes it impossible to trust our minds is self-defeating. In other words, if you hold to evolution as a whole worldview to explain even the way that you think, then even the thoughts that you think about your world are a way of surviving. And so they're not necessarily reality, they're just the thoughts that you have that are best for survival. And so tomorrow that might change. You, you know, down the road in history, it may change. You may have different thoughts that are better for survival at that point. And so if, if thoughts about reality and the way the world is change according to a natural selection process of evolution, then how can we trust the things that we think? And so Tim Keller says, for that reason, evolution as a whole worldview can't possibly be the case because we couldn't trust it in the first place. So he's not saying that Um, Evolution is a biological description of natural selection and how organisms uh, change over time is preposterous. He's not saying that at all. He actually believes that. But what he's saying is that evolution can't be your whole worldview because if it is, then you can't trust the things that you're thinking. No, that was pretty up there, so we'll take it back to (laughs) Tim Keller has a way of doing that. Um, But I really appreciate his his thoughts. He's a lot smarter than I am. The other view is intelligent design. This is the idea that um, creation and the way it came into being can be scientifically studied and proven. So it's not necessarily the idea of Christianity. There can be intelligent design people who believe in that that aren't Christians, and then there can also be Christians who believe in intelligent design, that it's scientifically studyable and provable. So it's not necessarily Christianity. It could be the view of a Christian, um, but that's the fifth view. The question is, what is the biblically right perspective? Well, as I said, Moses doesn't tell us. Moses tells us that there, we can rule out some perspectives, right? That the idea that God created the heavens and the earth rules out a lot of things, right? Um, and so it only allows for certain things that are in conjunction with that. But we have to have humility and charity with one another as we disagree. Why is all this important, though? 
Why do we look at these things? Why do we talk about them? Think about the way that you button your shirt in the morning. Uh, Josh Patterson talked about it like this. And in terms of thinking about creation, it's important because we're talking about the beginning. And if you get the first button on your shirt wrong, what happens? The whole rest of it is wrong, right? And so if I, if I, if I come up to preach someday and you notice that I've got uh, you know, this button down here or something, you know that something's gone wrong and the shirt's just not going to work. And, and it's the same thing with life. If we get the beginning wrong, if we get the beginning of our worldview wrong, then everything else ends up being corrupted by that wrong at the beginning. And so we have to get creation right. We have to get what the Bible is saying about creation right. We have to look at what Moses is trying to tell us about God and understand that because it shapes and forms everything else in life. So the second thing we've got to realize is that God created everything. He is the one who made it all. And he's not try- Moses isn't trying to lay out for us um, an argument for the age of the earth. He's not trying to argue about a scientific process. He's not even trying to argue um, a like a, a, a certain modern view of history. He is telling us history. But the way Moses writes history is different than the way that you and I understand history. He's writing in such a way as to tell us what God did, and it's in contrast to the cultures around him. And so Moses is writing this seven-day description of a temple ceremony where God, who created everything and is ruling and reigning over everything, at the end sits down on his throne and rests. And there's no battle. There's no discussion. There's no opposers to this God who made all things. So Moses is presenting you the God who made everything. And that's his point. And so that's where we start this series, is that God made everything. And if God made everything, then you and I are included in that. And we're responsible to God alone. And so what God has to say about our lives matters. And this is why we study the Bible together. This is why we're going to continue to look at these things together and examine them and and dive into what God would have us walk in. But maybe you're here today and you don't really care about the creation part because you know you're in the middle. And what you see around you is broken. And you don't know how to get out of it. John, in the beginning of his gospel that we're going to look at at Christmas time this year, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What he's talking about with the Word, and in Genesis 1, we read about God speaking things into being and ordering them that way. And in John, he's writing about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the Word of God, and he hasn't just left us in our brokenness. Instead, he's entered into it. Our Christmas series is called He Dwelt Among Us this year because we're looking at a God who not only creates but enters into the mess that we've made of his creation and is with us to redeem it, to redeem us. And as Jesus says at the end in Revelation 21, he's making all things new. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful today for you. We're grateful that 
you have revealed yourself to us, that you've not left us to wonder about life and the brokenness we see around us. God, that you, you have spoken to us. God, we ask for help to trust you. God, we ask that you would give us faith. You would help us to believe. God, help us to believe in you and to trust in you alone. In Jesus' name.